Hello and welcome to Monkey Business, a podcast about the mind. I'm Rosalind Palmer, your host, and I'm a rapid transformational hypnotherapist, clinical hypnotherapist and coach. For 30 years, I've been steeped in the world of NLP and learning about what makes people tick. My background is a business background. I ran, I created, I sold an award-winning PR company in the 90s. I learned a lot about business. I also learned a lot about mindset and I learned the hard way about burnout. Having the right mindset in business is arguably the number one predictor of whether your business will succeed or fail. What's more, your business can succeed, mine did, but you might fail as a human being. So quieting your mind is a key to enjoying the business journey, coming back from setbacks, enjoying the successes without letting them completely change you, and also creating a balanced life for yourself outside of the business. This is a podcast for you to learn from the successes and failures of others who have tamed their monkey mind or sometimes allowed their chimp to take over. It will give you insights into how they've used their mindset for success and help you navigate your life and achieve better business outcomes. So without further ado, welcome to Monkey Business. I'm Rosalind Palmer and you are most welcome. Hello and welcome to another episode of Monkey Business. I'm Rosalind Palmer, your host, and this is a podcast really to get behind the thinking of successful leaders, business people, politicians today, and understand really how they managed to tame that monkey brain, that monkey chatter that a lot of us are held back from. So I'm absolutely delighted today to welcome somebody who I know, and it's Anne Widdicombe. And Anne, it's lovely to see you. Thank you so much for joining me. Great to be here. I have memories of us on the leprosy mission in Ethiopia, both being very ill. Absolutely. And Mozambique as well, being maybe not so ill. But I no, we weren't ill in Mozambique. No, we, we that was, thankfully, we got through that trip okay. But so Anne probably doesn't need very much introduction. Anne is a former MEP, a former government minister in the UK government, a former MP, and also a star of many, many TV series such as Strictly Come Dancing. But I'm here today to really understand about Anne's mindset. So, Anne, you, I would describe you as having grit and you have come through, I was reading your book actually earlier, I was just reminding myself of your book earlier, and you came through politics, particularly at a time when perhaps being a woman wasn't so common and it was a bit of an old boys network. How did you push on through every day in that world, really determined to make a difference and be true to yourself? Well, first of all, I never thought of myself as a woman MP. I was an MP who happened to be a woman, just in the same way that I was an MP who happened to be short and fat rather than tall and thin. Uh, but I didn't ever regard myself as a woman MP, and I didn't ever think it was an issue. Now, you know, if you think you're going to encounter a problem, you'll encounter it. You know, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, and 
I vividly remember shortly after all the Blair babes got in. You might remember 101 of them. Might as well have had 101 Dalmatians, quite honestly. Anyway, they came in. And about six months afterwards, one of them came up to me in the corridor in the House of Commons. And she said to me, Anne, isn't it horrible how the men are so rude to us? And I said, yes. Uh, and isn't it horrible how they're so rude to each other? And she hadn't thought of that. She'd just been roughed up in the chamber. She assumed it was because she was a woman. In fact, it was because she was useless. And if you go in to the House of Commons or presumably anywhere else, expecting to find problems because you are a woman, that is what you will read into every situation. And as I say, it will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. I never gave it a second thought. We had no all-women shortlists, A-lists, quotas, none of that rubbish in my day. You competed with the men on a level playing field. It wasn't tilted towards you. Uh, and you competed with them on a level playing field and you succeeded or failed on that. And I never, therefore, thought of myself as any different from them. As far as I was concerned, we were all members of Parliament. Well, as you know, I was Gross's daughter and uh, I think I was possibly the boy my dad didn't have. So I didn't truly grow up with very many self-limiting beliefs myself. But I do know it's often people can get cast into roles. Yeah, but tell them not to. You yeah. see, when, whenever uh, I talk in girls' schools from time to time, less now than I used to, but I still do occasionally, and I'm always asked, you know, well, how do you manage as a woman? And I say, by not being conscious of it. You know, the instant you think you've got a problem, you will have one. So how, if you're brought up with those limiting beliefs, because you're hearing them as a daily mantra, of, oh, that's not for girls, that's not for the like of us, that's not what people like us do. How do you think people can smash on through those limitations that are really almost handed to them? Oh, well, I mean, my parents are very traditional. You know, my mother was a homemaker. She didn't work once she'd had us. Um, my father was the one who was expected to be ambitious and get on in life, etc. And that's what they expected uh, that their children would do. And the assumption was my brother would be ambitious and I'd be a homemaker. Well, <laughs> no, didn't work that way. But it wasn't an issue. I grew up knowing what I wanted to do, confident in my ability to do it, or I hoped at any rate uh, that I was able enough to do it. Uh, and that was all it needed. It, it, you, you, we surround ourselves with difficulties now. We look for problems. We look for limitations. We look for issues. We look for reasons. Oh, well, I was brought up that way. Come on. You're now a grown up. You're responsible for yourself. Come on. Don't be defined uh, uh, by anything uh, other than your own views and, and your own beliefs. That's what makes a person. One of the things I've seen with a lot of people, particularly sticking with politics for a moment, is, and I read a report recently, and I'll be interested to see your opinion on this because it's probably psychobabble, but that a lot of politicians tend to be narcissists. They tend to be, it's about me, which can be good in so much as if the buck stops at you, you're not going to let people down. But also, as we've seen in some other countries, maybe across the pond, etc., I think they find it very hard to either let go or they find it hard to take others' opinions into account. What's your thoughts on that? Well, of course, we're all egoists. You have to be to be an MP. First of all, you've got to believe people should elect you. You've actually got to believe that you're the best person for the job and they should put their cross by your name. You start with that assumption. We'll work it out. It's a pretty big assumption. 
Uh, then you go into Parliament and the overwhelming majority, not all. Some people are very content with, with the constituency role and know that from the moment they go in and they're perfectly content with it. But the overwhelming majority want to be in positions where they can do things and effect change. Uh, and so they want to be ministers. Well, you've got to have a pretty good big ego to want that. Um, and knowing what you want to do and believing that you're the person to do it is not actually a sign of, of narcissism. It doesn't mean you worship yourself and, and you're vain about yourself and you don't think anybody else can do it, but it means you're driven by a belief in yourself. There is nothing wrong with that. It's only wrong if you trample over everybody else and you're hurry to get there. What would be your view of the ones who kind of don't cut it then and fall by the wayside? I mean, is that just lack of self-belief, lack of grit? What would your opinion be of that? Well, it entirely depends. I mean, I knew in, in the field of work that I was in, which was in Parliament, I knew lots of MPs who did want to become ministers who never managed it. I knew lots of people who did want to be candidates who never managed it, let alone become MPs. And they went off, they did other things. They reached a point when they said, this, this isn't going to work for me. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that either. I mean, if you ask me, you know, of course, I would like to have been prime minister, but I always accepted that was you know, a very remote possibility. I wasn't going to be disappointed if I didn't become so. Uh, and you, you do what you can with what ability and character you've got. And as long as you do it to your utmost, so that at the end of your life, you can say, well, actually, you know, there wasn't something I could have done if, if only I'd tried a bit harder. Long as you don't have to say that to yourself, it's okay. I mean, come on, guys and girls, come on. Where do you think we get the kind of moral chasms? That I mean, I, I've heard you speak recently about, I think particularly about the vaccine issue and the EU and what's going on there. Yeah. And you actually said uh, they're morally isolated or, you know, they, they're going to be morally isolated with their view. When you have these moral chasms between either people or countries, yeah. how do you bridge that? Well, you have your beliefs and presumably the other person or the other country has theirs for whatever reason seems good to them. I mean, all the time I was in Parliament, I dealt with the great moral issues of the day. I mean, abortion, for example, and I was very, very involved in the pro-life movement and, you know, fought three big bills uh, in the late 80s and early 90s. <coughs> so uh, I'm uh, well used to the fact that not everybody will agree with you. Uh, and you don't expect everybody to agree with you. The point is, do you believe in what you're doing? And if so, go ahead and do it. And don't look to anybody else for approval because you may not find it. But I mean, the problem that I identified with the EU was they made a complete mess of their procurement programme. I mean, Boris, whom I have criticised quite heavily about his management of COVID, nevertheless, uh, had the wit to say, right, you know, vaccines are the answer. Um, therefore, I'm going to order large quantities of several of them, even before so much as one is approved, because this is where the answer is. Now, the EU didn't take that line, took the line that it must go through all its usual bureaucratic procedures. And until the vaccines have been actually approved, they weren't going to order any. That was their chosen path. And, 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 and that was down to them. But for them then to turn around and say, oh, dear, you know, Britain's doing well. We want some of theirs. We'll stop exporting to them, even though we signed agreements, even though we may have to overrule anything from patents, you know, onwards. Um, and so I believe that that was wrong. Uh, it's not the way the rest of the world is operating. Um, I think it was morally wrong. It was legally wrong. Politically, it was the action of a donkey. 
So how do we get around it? I mean, we just, you know, in, in this case, well, people take being so intransigent with their moral views. Well, if people are intransigent with their moral views, you leave them to it. I mean, I always took the line uh, that you can argue with somebody and you can reason with somebody, but you cannot rely on being able to change their minds. I mean, I wish I could. I would have got 100% you know, being elected with sort of votes on every doorstep. Doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. Come on. You know, it's not the end of the world that somebody else disagrees with you. Well, I'm seeing well a lot of at the moment. You know, if you look at you know hashtags, I'm sure that's something you don't look at at all. But no, I don't, not at all. Don't do any social media. There's a hashtag that I see a lot because I've actually got sheep. I don't know if you know this now, Anne, but I've actually got <laughs> sheep and and a ram on loan actually. Uh, Martin the ram because I thought he was an imposter, so I called him after Martin Gare. But um, I have a hashtag sheep, but I notice a lot the hashtag sheep without a shepherd comes up. And clearly, it's about people really following blindly and maybe not making decisions for themselves. And at the moment, there just seems to be so much fear around that there is an element of slight kind of rabbit in the headlight paralysis with people. What do you, Have you seen that going on? I think there are different kinds of fear around. Um, one of my big issues at the moment is free speech. Yeah, I would agree. And it's people being free to say what they think. Now, people like me can, you know, and I don't do social media. I don't care how many Twitter storms I cause, you know, I'm scarcely aware of them. It doesn't matter. Uh, but I know what I believe and I'm, I'm going to say it. Uh, but there are lots of people who dare not say what they think because they're going to be disciplined at work. You can say something as innocent as God bless you. And if somebody takes offence, you know, that's a disciplinary proceeding. Uh, or you get people who are cancelled, you know, the cancel culture. Uh, and that's, again, that's fine. If you're Piers Morgan, you can afford to laugh at it. But if you're uh, an ordinary, uh, you know, way down the cast list performer uh, in a large production, you can't be quite so brave. Well, you can be, but you will pay a price for it. And there's that sort of fear. And I think you need a two-pronged approach there. There is a huge political duty. Uh, on those at Westminster to um, make the cancel culture itself cancelled, to uh, legislate against it, to make sure that, that people can be free to speak. But also it's down to individuals. You know what St Paul said, we believe and therefore speak. So for you, it's a question of civil liberties. Yes, big civil liberties. Uh, we've always had in this country the right to dissent. Uh, from state orthodoxy, from where the majority are. Certainly, we've always had the right to dissent from a minority, which is mainly what we're up against now with the Wokarati. Uh, and, uh, I mean, I can remember, uh, because I grew, I was a post-war baby, uh, in the 1950s, you know, people had just lost husbands, sons, uh, brothers to the Nazis. They'd lost limbs. They'd lost houses in the Blitzes. Um, and yet Oswald Mosley was allowed to form the British Union of Fascists, was allowed to hold meetings. Um, now, you think not only what an insult people would have felt, but how hurt they would have been. You know, mm. Consider their losses, how hurt they would have been. And yet we valued freedom of speech, even where we utterly deplored it. Fast forward another 10 years, we're at the height of the Cold War. Weapons all along the Warsaw Pact countries lined up pointing straight at us in case we've forgotten it. Yet, you could still be a communist in this country. You could stand for parliament as a communist. You wouldn't get in. 
but you could stand, you could be on the ballot paper, you can sell the Morning Star on street corners, you could say to anybody that you were a communist, uh, and we thought that was important because liberty mattered. Now we're at a stage when the very slightest digression from the orthodoxy of the woke can bring the sky down on your head. We've gone into complete reverse, and I think that is very, very dangerous. And we are nothing if not free. I mean, I always use this analogy. Uh, there are two lions. One's in a zoo. It's terribly well looked after. His owner's terribly responsible. He's well cared for. He's healthily fed. Uh, if he's slightly ill, the vet is called immediately. And when at the end of his life, he's dying a long lingering death, the owner says, no, 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 we're not having that. And the vet puts him to sleep. That lion has been cared for, looked after, is every need met all its life. That's the lion in the zoo. Then there's a lion on the plains. He can only eat when he kills. Otherwise, he can't eat. If he's ill, absolutely nobody comes to the rescue. Uh, and when he's dying, nobody shortens the process for him. But would you rather be the lion in the zoo or the lion on the plains. I want to be the free lion on the plains. And I want all my fellow citizens to feel that they are also free on the plains to take their chance with what they think and what they believe is right. And the trouble is, you know, because I've got animals here and we got some turkeys a while ago and they'd been kept in a shed for a year and we put them into a stable, but then opened the stable door every day. And it took about a month before they actually went out. I literally had to drive them out of the stable. And then they literally did a kind of a circumnavigate of the paddock and went back in again. So they were effectively conditioned or trapped in their own minds. And you see that with animals if you literally did have them in their cage and open the door. And I'm very interested in, do you think we're going to be like that after lockdown? Are people yes. locking themselves we are all down? Right. You can see it already. You can see it already. People, you know, too timid to actually come out. You had it when schools first opened, parents saying they weren't sending their children back to school. Mm. Uh, you certainly had that during the at the end of the first lockdown when the schools opened. People, people were just too terrified. Uh, and so, yes, you can make a habit out of tyranny. You can make a habit out of deciding what's good for people and, and telling them and looking after them and saying you're benign. Uh, and I think it's worth remembering um, the old saying, but a very, very true one, and I can't remember who said it, um, that the welfare of mankind has been the alibi of the tyrant throughout human history. And it's true. So how does one strike a line between, for example, holding a visual to, to say, you know, these things aren't right or I want to express my opinion and then being called a, a riot or a rabble rouser? How does one tread the line between civil liberties and actually going over into being part of the issue itself? Well, I mean, I think that's very straightforward. I mean, there is an enormous difference between somebody standing at a good social distance, at a vigil, uh, and somebody pulling down a statue, say, you know, the one is, a, is, is being as responsible as he or she can be in the circumstances, the other is a rabble rouser. Uh, but I actually think the police were right, because uh, this is what's in your mind, yes. at the vigil for Sarah Everard, because the courts had said it couldn't go ahead. Now, you know, at that point, if the courts say a vigil cannot go ahead, then you you simply postpone it and you say, OK, it, it cannot go ahead. That is the law. We are all bound by the law. Uh, and 
the police were there dealing with a largely peaceful crowd, but amongst which there were elements which were taunting them, which were, you know, breaking the law. Uh, and I think they were right to react. Um, and uh, my own view is that the, the Duchess of Cambridge got it right. She went privately. Uh, she la- she made her tribute. She laid a flower or whatever it was. And then she left again. Um, and so did hundreds of people that day. Uh, and I don't actually think it was necessary to break the law. Even though, and I mean, you're an ex-government um, minister, you know, involved with prisons, the rate of convictions for crimes against women is woefully low. Do you not think there's some justifiable anger within women? Well, now, we come on to two completely different issues. I haven't said that what happened to Sarah Everard was negligible. I mean, it's massive and it's important. Of course it is. I'm just saying there are different ways of expressing uh, support for women in that situation. Ah, But secondly, what is very dangerous, Rosalind, is to say the conviction rate is low. Now, it may be low as a percentage of complaints, but I am not going, I don't want to see justice ruled by statistics. Mm. And I think that is one of the big problems that happened with Operation Midland, for example, whereby politicians and the police uh, were saying, you know, we don't get enough conviction. So what we're going to do is believe the complainant automatically. So in the end, they took that to such an extreme that we had the ramblings of a complete fantasist pronounced publicly on television to be credible and true Mm. by a senior policeman. Mm. Now, I've always believed justice must be impartial. You can say to somebody, have confidence that you will be treated respectfully. You never say, have confidence that you will be believed, because that is something which you only determine uh, on investigation. So you treat people respectfully, but you don't automatically believe them. And yet we have a situation where they refer to people as the victim and the perpetrator even before the investigations open. Now, I feel sorry for the innocent person who's labelled the perpetrator. What's he perpetrated? Absolutely nothing. Uh, And so I'm not going to be driven by conviction rates um, when it comes to administering justice. As far as I'm concerned, uh, if 100% of allegations are false, which clearly they're not, but if 100% of allegations are false, then it's okay to have uh, a 0% conviction rate. Grit and determination shines through, and uh, you certainly helped me when I was very ill in Ethiopia. Privately said to a couple. You helped me when I was very ill in Ethiopia. Well, it it was very bonding. I've privately said to quite a few people, if you're going to be incredibly ill in the middle of nowhere in Ethiopia, having Anne Widdicombe by your side is actually a very, very good thing because she does not take no for an answer, (laughs) and you and you you push on through. So the grit and the determination are in no doubt. Um, but the well, sun- I was getting you out of a third world hospital and onto uh, a coach and no, I think that's the right thing to do. Yeah. I thank you. Going back to ending your career in politics, when do you get that self-awareness that it's time to quit and let go? Oh, uh, little straws in the wind. Uh, for example, um, I came to prefer it when I was going from Westminster to the country rather than the other way round. Mm. Used to be the other way round. Yeah. There was a time when if you'd said to me, you know, what job would I have wanted in television? I would have said Paxman's, Humphreys. Um, then I'd say Alan Jones. <laughs> yeah. 
These are straws in the wind. Uh, and the biggest indicator always is when your sense of outrage starts to blunt, because you're no good to your constituents unless you're angry on their behalf. Mm. Um, that makes it sound as if you go around in a perpetual bad temper, which isn't quite what I mean, but you, you've got to feel strongly yeah, on galvanized, their behalf. Galvanised on their behalf, <laughs> aren't you? And if you uh, if you, um, you you get the same problem time and time again, and if you find that your outrage is becoming blunted, then that's another straw in the wind. You know, it's 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 time to go. And I got it absolutely right the point of exit, um, because I was asked in two thousand and seven if I wanted to stand again, and there were three years of that parliament, and then five years of another. I knew I shouldn't do another eight years. I could cheerfully have done four or five, no problem at all. I knew I didn't want to do six, seven, eight. Uh, but that was the way the electoral cycle fell. And so I said, no, I'll go in 2010. And if um, I had gone earlier, I would have missed it. If I'd gone later, I would have been jaded. I did actually get the point of exit right. I was still at the top of my form for looking after constituents. Uh, I was still very engaged in legislation in the House. Uh, but uh, there were those straws in the wind which said, I want a different kind of life. Uh, and uh, so I got it right. And um, for that, uh, I, I do send up many prayers of thanks because it's a, one big decision that it's easy to get wrong. Oh, 100%, which is why I asked it, you know, because I, I yeah. again, I work with people in my present career and I, I would just rename your straws in the wind. I, you know, I think they're kind of mindset indications or their gut feelings, they, whatever you want to call them. But I like the straws in the wind. I think we're on the same page on that one. And it is knowing when to listen to them and when to let go. And I think a lot of people aren't very good at that. So when you segued into something completely different, now for something completely different, strictly, what was going on in your head then that made you decide? Well, to absolutely, yes? absolutely nothing, because I, I couldn't have foreseen what was about to happen. Uh, as far as I was concerned, I mean, I had been approached every single year by Strictly. I mean, every year since 2004, when they started, you know, the celebrity version of Strictly Come Dancing, uh, I I was approached every year. And every year I said, no, it's not appropriate. Uh, I'm an MP, you know. First of all, there's the time involved, which is huge in Strictly. You know, it's every day. Uh, but secondly, you know, I do owe my constituents and indeed my front bench, you know, some notion of dignity. And there ain't no dignity on Strictly. So particularly not if you're no good at it. So um, I said, no, 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 no. And then in 2009, with my retirement already announced, I said, well, you know, I might do it this year. Uh, but because there was a possibility of an autumn election, the BBC were afraid of having a political figure doing Strictly if there was an election imminent. So we said, no, no, we'll do it the following year, which suited me because I was retired the following year. And what did I think? I thought I was going to last two, three weeks, you know, get paid anyway. So I mean, that was nice. Uh, and that would be it. And that would be a bit of fun uh, and that I would enjoy myself. Um, but that was it. Well, I was right that it was going to be fun. I was right that I was going to enjoy myself. But I was totally wrong about everything else. I mean, I lasted 10 out of the 12 weeks. Didn't expect it. That then led to my doing the live tour. And Anton doesn't do the tour. So I actually did it with Craig, Revel Hallwood. <laughs> uh, and he then asked me to go into pantomime. As a result of being pantomime, I was asked to be on at the Royal Opera House. I can't sing a note. 
But I I'm saw that. I saw that. Principle, eh? you know. I mean, what's all this about? Uh, and I wasn't expecting any of that. And what it actually did was what I thought was going to happen in retirement. I was retiring to Dartmoor, which I've done. I was going to walk dogs on the moors. I was going to write some more books, uh, and that was going to be my retirement. Uh, and instead of which, I suddenly got into this whirl of showbiz. Couldn't have animals because I wasn't home enough. Um, and suddenly started uh, 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 doing something completely different that I'd never predicted. And actually, it's a very good lesson, because if I'd said no to Strictly, because I can't dance, which you might think was a very good reason for saying no, if I had said no to Strictly, none of that would have happened. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I said yes, and without being able to dance, what Anton and I decided, I mean, he could dance, but what Anton and I decided to do was a comedy. Uh, and as a result of that, because it is a family entertainment show, and until the final, whether you can dance or not doesn't much matter, um, it, it all worked. And, and it sent things in a completely different direction. So I always say to young people, never mind people just retiring, I always say to young people, don't be too convinced that there's only one way of doing something. You know, there may be something completely different that you would never countenance normally, that holds huge possibilities for you. I'm sure they're not all walking the park there. What was maybe your biggest challenge on something like I'm a Celebrity when you're in that really close, weird proximity with other people? You mean Big Brother, Mida? Big Brother, sorry. Yes, apologies. <laughs> apologies. No, I, did. I didn't do I'm a Celebrity. a reality TV kind of person. There you go. <laughs> big Brother. <laughs> yes, it was Big Brother. Uh, I, I don't think I'd ever do I'm a Celebrity because I've got huge hype phobia. Oh. Uh, so... Um, I uh, Big Brother, I'd always said no to. It was one of those other programs that occasionally asked me, not every year like Strictly did, but occasionally. And I always said, look, if you paid me a million, I wouldn't do it. You know, it's ghastly. It's voyeuristic. I, I, you know, Jean-Paul Sartre said that hell is other people. And the idea of being in a completely enclosed bubble uh, with other people um, of, of a set, you know, a set of other people that never varied for four weeks or something it was just unthinkable so I just said no 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 and then my agent rang me up in 2017 uh and he said um now I'm going to say two words you don't want to hear and I said if it's big brother don't say them and he said well listen and big brother um was suggesting that in order to celebrate the centenary of women's suffrage they should have a special big brother program and initially, they even wanted to call it Big Sister, uh, but the channel wouldn't have it. But but that was what they wanted to call it. And they were going to look at, uh, and they were going to have serious debates. So I said, Big Brother and serious debates. And he said, well, that's what they're suggesting. But his clinching argument to me was, look, you know, this they may deliver on the promise. It may be something completely different. Um, or uh, if it's not, you know, you're not in the jungle. You're in Elstree. You can walk out. And that's what that entire production team thought I was going to walk out in the first week. And so did I, actually. Uh, and um, so I said, oh, all right, on that basis, I'll do it. Because if you walk out, you don't get paid, which is perfectly right. Uh, but you do at least get out of the situation. So I said, OK, you know, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. Well, within that first week, of course, I mean, it's a competition and my competitive instincts just kicked in, just kicked in. I wanted to survive. So that pushed you on through with all what your other mindset was, why am I here? 
well, my mindset was, am I really doing this? But we did have, because they purported to be serious, this time it didn't last long, but because they purported to be serious, they had people like Rachel Johnson. Mm. There was Amanda Bowery, who is, you know, 83 and and, and sort of perfectly sensible person. There were a couple of other very sensible people. Uh, And uh, therefore, it was much more bearable than it might normally have been. Mm. Uh, uh, But... um, I mean, the theory is, is is a good one. You put people together and you see who survives. plays out. <laughs> which, which was worse, the Big Brother house or the Victorian house? Oh, well, the Big Brother house was worse. The Victorian house, um, I did enjoy simply from the point of view of experiencing something completely different. Um, but people say to me very often, Ros, they, they ask me, they say, uh, well, was it real or did we go off to hotels at the end of the day? Oh, I bet and all, all I can say is I wish, my dear, I wish. I mean, for six days, six of us lived as Victorians. We wore Victorian clothes mm. all the way through to the underwear, all the way through. Yeah. We ate ghastly Victorian food. We did hideous Victorian working class jobs. You know, there was there was no easement there at all. We did really dreadful jobs, filthy jobs. Uh, and uh, we didn't wash or clean our teeth properly for a week. Uh, and in fact, several months later, on a completely different program, I met by chance in a studio Colin Jackson, who was one of the other people oh, yeah, doing yeah. the doing the program. And as we gave each other a hug of greeting, we spoke simultaneously, and we said, "Oh, you do smell better." <laughs> uh, so, uh, so yes, it, it, it was absolutely uh, uh, real. But there was a moment when we did get a tantalising glimpse of the twenty first century. And that was when they were transferring us up to the potteries. And, of course, we couldn't travel in a, in a proper modern coach. That would have been totally wrong. Uh, so, uh, And we couldn't travel in a Victorian coach and horses. So they put us into um, a, a, a rather basic minibus, basically, mm-hmm. to get us there. Well, that was all very well. But because it was a basic minibus, there was no internal facility. And we were on the road for two and a half hours. So they had to stop at a motorway services station. Well, what the ordinary clientele thought when these six filthy, <laughs> filthy Victorians came in, I tatty Victorians, I do not know. But what I do know is that the entire production team was wound up because they were terrified that while we were there, we weren't just going to go to the facilities and get back on the bus. No, 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 no. They were convinced we were going to sneak past their line and buy a latte <laughs> how do you buy a latte with pounds shillings and pence particularly victorian half crowns and sixpences uh, which was all we had i do not know well if anybody could i think it would be you Anne, because i remember our sharabang journey in uh, ethiopia and i think it wasn't <laughs> dissimilar really and i just remember a lot of stops um, because <laughs> i needed them so thank you so much today I, I just want to finish with a question or a couple of questions one is what's the question that i haven't asked you that you might ask yourself to really reveal about what what makes you tick Anne? Oh, yeah, well, I, because I don't go in for self-analysis, I, I, I don't really have a question. That's something else I strongly recommend. Don't be too bothered analysing everything you do. You analyse yourself out of most things at that rate. Um, just just uh, sometimes go with your gut. I mean, don't be rash, but... Go with it. And what would be one question... Are you bleeping? 
No, I'm not bleeping. I think oh, we should be bleeping. Something in my house must be bleeping, but I have no idea what it is. Okay, I can't hear it, but there we go. <laughs> uh, and what is there a question you wouldn't want to be asked? Of course, you'll be too clever and say, yes, there is, and I'm not answering it. But would there be one, Anne? Uh, there are several, and I'm not answering any of them. Excellent. What a brilliant end to it. <laughs> 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 so I, I'm going to rename Psycho Babble the straws in the wind because uh, I think they're all those little little. Oh, they're not Psycho Babble. Straws in the wind are small indicators. They're not the great wind itself. They're small indicators. This is the way the wind is blowing. That's what a straw in the wind is. That's right. But I think with mindset, often it is those small things that make people, you know, think and do and behave better. So thanks so much for letting me have this Thank you. little chat with you. It's been a pleasure. So my guest today has been Anne Widdicombe. We've covered such a lot of topics. And thanks always, Anne, for being so forthright and brilliant. And um, I look forward to speaking to you again soon sometime. Thank you. Bye. You are Bye. most welcome. You've been listening to Monkey Business, a podcast about the monkey minds of the kings and queens of the jungle who are able to drive through that monkey chatter. And my guest today has been the inimitable Anne Widdicombe former government minister in the UK, one of the most high-profile politicians of recent times. And we've been discussing topics that have ranged from Brexit, COVID, injections, through to Big Brother, being smelly in a Victorian house, Strictly Come Dancing, writing, and the straws in the wind that tell you it's time to quit. I'm Rosalind Palmer, I'm your guest. Do join me again in two weeks' time for another episode of Monkey Business. And if you're not subscribed, do subscribe for future episodes. And I look forward to joining with you again soon.